Amen, indeed. And thank you to our music team for all of their hard service uh, that they put in week in and week out to lead us in song. On April 5th, 2006, the local citizens of Padre Island, which is a sliver of land on the eastern shore of the state of Texas, just north of its border with Mexico, were very excited. Construction had finally begun on the 134-unit skyscraper that promised to be the crowning jewel of local community growth. It would have amazing views of the ocean, and each condo would feature Italian marble floors, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, custom cabinets, stainless steel fixtures, oversized jacuzzi tub, and stand-up showers, which... Is there another kind of shower I don't know about? But construction proceeded steadily over the next two years, and then the nightmare began. In May of 2008, developers found cracks in the columns supporting the parking garage, which is not good. Turns out that two massive errors had been made. One, the foundation was not stable, and the condo tower had secondly been built attached to the garage structure instead of as a separate building as originally designed. The tower was sinking into the ground, and it was doing so at a rate nearly twice the speed of the parking garage that it was fatally attached to. Supporting columns began buckling 100 feet underground and transferring the stresses of that to the rest of the building, which began leaning heavily and cracking both itself and the parking garage. While construction halted, The construction workers and architects went to massive lengths to try to save the building, promising those who had reserved all but 34 of the units already that somehow, someday, they would eventually move in as planned. And then at 9 a.m. on December 13, 2009, a final solution was achieved. It wasn't the solution that they had hoped for. It was the largest implosive demolition of a reinforced concrete structure ever, and a lasting testament, like the Tower of Pisa, to the dangers of building upon a faulty foundation. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to show the Corinthians, by example, the way to lay a gospel foundation. We've all seen what it looks like when a supposedly Christian ministry flourishes by all outwardly appearances only to come crashing down because of a flawed foundation. And lest we too in our lives and in our families and in our church risk the same fate, it's a good idea for us to check the foundation together this morning and to be reminded how to build in a way that will endure. And so if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I'd invite you to take it and turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we will read this morning verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bibles and you are able, I invite you to stand and join me to honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith 
would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator and we are the creature. You are the everlasting one and we are not. You are the permanent and we are the temporal. And so there is great folly that we would build on anything but you. And yet we confess there are so many temptations around us, other foundations that appeal to us and that tempt us to build our lives and our faith upon things beside your power demonstrated in Christ. And I pray this morning that we would be reminded of the goodness of resting in Christ alone. And so we ask that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as with many things, the most important principles in laying a gospel foundation are, in fact, quite simple, uh, but they require attention and discipline and trust. And I love Paul for that reason, because he's such a great example of those qualities and how to live them out practically. And the pattern of his ministry is a blessing to us to, to study, to learn from, and to imitate. And so I want us to join in with this lesson that Paul is giving to the church in Corinth. And we're going to look first at the first of four guiding principles that lay a gospel foundation the right way. And the first is this, and bonus points to all of you who've already filled in all the blanks in my outline. I know it's not that subtle, but it's truth. We can't preach God's gospel man's way. We can't preach God's gospel man's way. Paul has already preached the glory of a foolish gospel. He's preached the glory of the word of the cross that is going to always be a scandal to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentile. He's proclaimed God's wisdom in using a foolish people, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but exactly what God is looking for to accomplish his purposes. And Paul is now going to give an example of what that looks like to take an unimpressive person and a scandalous gospel message and put the two together and live it out in front of a city like Corinth. Paul himself was that example. And so he begins with this sort of autobiographical note in verse 1, and when I came to you, brethren, he's reminding the Corinthians of his stay with them. Paul had arrived at Corinth after preaching the word of the cross right in the middle of Athens to the Athenians on Mars Hill. He had found a home in Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla, who not only shared his Jewish background, they also shared his vocation of tent making and his love for Jesus. He had preached the word of the cross to the Jews in their synagogues until they had utterly rejected the gospel. And then he preached the word of the cross to the Gentiles and did it in the house right next door to the synagogue. And ironically, that was when the leader of the synagogue himself converted, moved next door and joined Paul's church. Paul then spent over a year and a half teaching, shepherding, and establishing the church in that place. So in other words, Paul hadn't just dropped by to say hello to the Corinthians. This was among his longer ministries that he ever engaged in during his travels. They had seen Paul up close and over a long period of time. And Paul had stayed long enough in Corinth to really understand that context and that situation, to have had the opportunity to fine-tune his ministry to his local cultural context, to really make it relevant and effective. So what did Paul do? How did Paul strategically organize his ministry in Corinth? Well, he begins to tell us, When I came to you, brethren, 
I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. This ministry of Paul is first marked by what it wasn't. Paul did not come with, or more literally, Paul did not come according to the standards of superiority of speech, the standards of superiority of wisdom. That word superiority there just means that, you know, something that's excelling, but also often something that is in a state of high official rank. In fact, the only other time we see this word in the New Testament is when Paul's telling us to submit to the governing superiors. And so he didn't swoop in with this strategy of impressing the Corinthians by employing highfalutin language and authoritative posturing. He didn't come in the way that the big muckety-muck speakers were supposed to come in with new ideas. He didn't come in with the categories and vocabulary approved by the smart people. Have you ever noticed that generation gap that happens when the people that told you the words you're supposed to use to refer to stuff have passed off the scene and now there's new authorities teaching your kids the words they're supposed to use to refer to stuff? And you're like, what are you talking about? And like, what are you talking about? Every generation has its wisdom, its way that you're supposed to talk about things. And Paul rejected all of that. A couple brief lessons for us here. God doesn't need a marketing team. God doesn't need a vanguard to go in and pull the people and figure out, okay, what are you looking for? What would you be impressed with? What would really be relevant for you before we begin to preach the gospel? He doesn't need people to go and set the tone and create the environment. Paul knew that, and so he said, no, thank you. Secondly, he remembered that we are witnesses, not creators. We are witnesses, not creators. Paul wasn't coming in to build some edifice to himself. He was coming in to say, I am a witness to God. I am a witness to who he is and to what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And I've come to proclaim that witness and that testimony to you. I'm not trying to invent something. I am trying to communicate something. And I think as Christians, sometimes we get a little antsy that we need to sort of build a new gospel franchise that will connect with each new generation instead of continuing to faithfully proclaim a God who never changes. And there's great encouragement in being able to rest in that. Does that mean we cannot be artistic in doing so? Of course not, because God's artistic. But we are not creating, we are witnessing And it may sound overly simplistic to begin by emphasizing what we aren't supposed to be doing instead of getting straight to the point, but I do think this caution is important. History has proven how easily we shipwreck our testimony by trying to get too smart for our own good in worldly terms. Haven't you not seen that? People that even for many decades have been faithful in the Lord's work, and all of a sudden you're going, what happened? as you watch the vocabulary shift and the category shift and you watch the people that they're trying to impress be less and less the people of God and more and more the people who are enemies of the cross. Paul is determined not to make that mistake and having made that determination, he's then ready to proceed down the narrow path of gospel faithfulness. And Paul gives us what that looks like next. We can't preach God's gospel man's way. We must preach God's gospel 
Surprise! God's way! Shocking, right? Look at verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except... Paul was a man with a plan. He didn't go into situations slapdash or haphazard. He always had a strategic set of goals. And his ministry in Corinth was no exception. Paul knew the basic outlines of Greek culture. He'd grown up in it. He'd read their poets. He'd learned their history. He'd rub shoulders with their traditions and ways as a young man. He wasn't just shooting in the dark in Corinth. He wasn't saying, I don't really know what's going on here, so I just stuck with what I know. Paul made a conscious decision to leave off the table any of the strategies he could have employed except for one. He determined before he went in, I will have a lot of different ways I could go about this, and I am determined not to use any of them except one. That strategy, to hang everything on it, to be an expert in one subject, to draw every argument in a circle that started and ended in the same place, that strategy was this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul intentionally confined his ministry to the exaltation of Jesus as a crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah, the Savior who died. And he also understood, I think in a way that it's hard for us to appreciate after 2,000 years of Christian history influencing the world and its thinking, he understood a lot more than we do just how radical that message was. One philosopher noted in his book, A Brief History of Thought, that this message was a bombshell of an idea in the Greek world. He writes this, to the horror of the Greeks, to the horror of the Greeks, the new believers maintained that the logos, in other words, the divine principle in their thinking, was in no sense identical with the harmonious order of the world, but was incarnated in one outstanding individually, individual, namely Christ. For what is at stake in this seemingly abstract debate as to where the divine principle resides, which is what the, the philosophers in Greece were doing, what's at stake is no less than the transition from an anonymous and blind doctrine of salvation to one that promises not only that we shall be saved by one person, Christ, but that we shall be saved as individuals in our own right for what we are and as we are. Not a believer writing that, but a philosopher who looked back and said, that idea rocked the world. It was so counter to their way of thinking that the divine could come into this world as a person in flesh to save people? It was radical. It was not something that would have been acceptable. It was offensive. But Paul's ministry was not only inclusive of the offense of the cross. Notice it was exclusive on the topic. Paul said, I am not going to try to show how Platonism or Aristotelianism lines up with the various philosophical underpinnings of the Christian worldview, which a lot of early church fathers tried to do. 
He said, no, I'm going to come in and declare Jesus Christ was crucified. Another simple but valuable reminder for us. And that leads, I think, to this as an application for us, is the cross at the center of our worldview. There are two related errors that we can make in our thinking. The first is to have parts of our lives that we consider to be separate from Christ and from Christ crucified. To live as though there are things in our lives that can operate underneath some other standard. And I think it's worthwhile for us to look at our lives this morning and ask, is there any part of it, any at all, that is not defined and guided by the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross? Because Jesus is the Christ and he is the Christ crucified, what should we do with our free time? What career options should we pursue? What schooling is appropriate? How should I relate to my spouse? How do I work with my grandkids? How do I serve in the church? How do I be involved in the community? Everything in our life needs to be an outflow of this one central truth that God sent his son to die for sinners. The cross must be at the very center of our worldview because to say that we know Christ and him crucified does not actually mean then that we are ignoring most of life. It means that all of life is connected to that one truth. And secondly, are we attached to any other lofty idea? Are we attached to any other lofty idea? This is the other error we can make. Like the tower that we started with this morning, we can make that mistake of having parts of our lives that we think are disconnected from the central structure. We can also make the mistake of bolting our faith to something else it shouldn't be attached to. Allowing other ideas in. The kind of ideas Paul wrote to Corinth about in 2 Corinthians 10.5 when he said, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because cracks in our faith, they form pretty quick when we start mixing truth with error. We live in a culture of powerful competing ideas, idolized individual autonomy, justified killing of the unborn, rejection of creational categories, self-righteous greed and envy, laziness and gluttony. These things are, are rife in our culture and it's easy to start even unintentionally bolting those ideas onto our faith, adding these broken cisterns to the well of living waters. You, think, you hear things like this coming out of the church. God wants me to be true to myself. This can't be God's will if it makes me uncomfortable. God loves me just as I am and it's okay if I stay that way. Jesus wants me to be a socialist in the name of compassion. Jesus wants me to be a rebel in the name of patriotism. It's okay to envy my neighbor until I have as much or more stuff than they do because God loves justice, right? Right? We start bolting other things onto the cross and the cross will not bear that. Paul avoided being sidetracked by all the cultural hot-button issues of the day, by all the philosophical rabbit trails, by all the distracting ideas and rhetoric and wisdom, by staying laser-focused on one thing, Christ and Christ crucified. And if we start there, every time, no apologies in our lives, in our discipleship, in our ministry, then we will build a faith that is 
independent of this world and dependent on the testimony of God alone. And perhaps it's tempting to wonder, well, what if that's not, what if that's not good enough? And the church seems to keep getting tempted by that, by that thought. But, but what if it's not working? What if Christ and Christ crucified is no longer in style? Because, yeah, Paul, I mean, that sounds good, but it's easy for you to say because you're Paul. You're an apostle. You're, you're saying all this stuff, but let's be real. You're like super brainy mega Jew. You probably strode into town with your big brains and your cool ideas. And, and I know you're being humble, but let's, let's be real. You're just really impressive. You blew everybody's philosophical socks off, right? Paul's going to say, well, about that. We can't preach the gospel man's way. We must preach the gospel God's way. Thirdly, because ultimately it's God's work anyway. It's God's work anyway. Look at verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul's ministry could not have been successful because of his charismatic personality or or his intimidating physical presence. Those weren't options. In fact, Paul struggled often with physical infirmities and with bouts of fear, one of which he experienced in Corinth itself. In Acts chapter 18, as it describes Paul moving from Athens into Corinth and beginning to minister there, in verse 9 of chapter 18, it says this, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision. So if God is coming to give you a vision, it's usually like some great prophetic revelation, right? In this case, Paul is going to get a vision from God because he needs God to remind him to chill out. Look at this. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Why would God tell Paul this? Because that's what he was struggling with. He was scared. He was tempted to shut up a little bit. Stop getting beaten up all the time. And can you blame him? Right? If every time you pass a house, you get bit by that dog, you start wanting to make a little bit of space around there, and God keeps sending him back to that house. And God has to come to Paul and say, don't be afraid. Keep preaching. I'm with you. And you're not even going to get beat up here. He got close, if you read <laughs> Acts 18, but they didn't beat him up in Corinth. That word weakness that shows up in our verse here typically refers to some kind of physical sickness or medical infirmity. It was no mistake that God sent Luke, a doctor, to be the traveling companion of Paul. He needed not infrequent medical care, acute medical care from almost dying often, and chronic medical care from the ongoing hardships that that would have left on his body. His eyesight also seems to have been an issue, which he apparently kind of jokingly refers to at the end of Galatians when he writes, uh, Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, you know. He also dealt with his famous thorn in the flesh that he wrote about to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12. We don't know whether that was a medical issue or not for sure, 
but one of the many things that Paul found to be an ongoing hardship. Paul was not this striking, physical, impressive, rhetorical figure who walked in with confidence as a motivational speaker, whipped the crowd up, impressed more by his charisma and his sense of togetherness than by anything else. No, Paul, looking back at his time in Corinth, it was not his most impressive hour. Paul, as we might say today, he was a little extra in Corinth. He was weak. He was fearful. He was trembling. And the Corinthians saw that. They saw that in him and they mocked him for that. Moving on in verse 4, Paul adds to that, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. We already discussed Paul's language was not the authoritative or superior kind. And here he goes even further to point out it wasn't full of clever word tricks designed to sneakily win you over either. He wasn't just pulling on your heartstrings. Nobody would do that today, right? Paul wasn't using rhetoric as a lever to manipulate the Corinthians. So he was weak, he was fearful, he was trembling. And he was provincially plain spoken. Not much to work with there, eh, Paul? But Paul's not done. That's just setting the stage. Paul's saying, when I came to you, there's nothing in my life or in my person that could get the credit for accomplishing anything among you. I didn't come in the right way with the right words. I was kind of pathetic. And I managed to be pathetic and not use pathos against you at the same time. look what Paul says next. He did come in demonstration of the spirit and of power. The heart of Paul's ministry, like the heart of the gospel, is not empty words, but demonstrated results. The spirit of God and the power of God were on full display in the proclamation and the ministry of Paul. Paul's message was simple and focused, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that message was adorned and affirmed by the actual demonstration of the Holy Spirit exercising divine power. And in some cases, that was quite visible and dramatic. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. One of the ways that God attested to the ministry of Paul was by letting him do things like have a foot. Ta-da. Right? That's, that's pretty definitive. But Paul's current focus does not seem to be on the amazing miracles and gifts that accompanied and attested to the authority of Paul's preaching. Instead, his focus has been and seems to be and is moving into in the next section the power of the word of the cross to bring the Corinthians to faith. And indeed, that will be the main subject of the next few weeks of our study. This is the most enduring demonstration of the power of the Spirit, that a simple, scandalous, foolish gospel is still bringing all those God chooses to faith. And praise God for that. The way that God is still most convincingly demonstrating His Spirit and His power in the world today is us, right? All of us at some point were like sheep who had gone astray. All of us having turned to our own way. 
And at some point, God reached down and did something nothing in this world can do. It, it took our dead hearts and made them alive and brought us into the family of God. That's real power. That's something Plato couldn't do. That's something Homer couldn't do. That's something Marx and Nietzsche couldn't do. That's something Trump can't do. That's something that no earthly power can do. And it doesn't need a fancy message wrapped around it to try to make it sound more impressive. It simply needs to be proclaimed clearly and through it to allow the power of God to do his work. And that's why Paul, right at the beginning of this book, could say he was so excited to see Christ confirmed in them, in the Corinthians, to the end, until they were blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul had prayed for them so often. His confidence was in that for them, not because of how impressive Paul was as a pastor, but because of how powerful God was as a savior. And one of the best ways that we can walk in the spirit is to not mess the gospel up by mixing us into it. And to allow God's spirit to work in our lives by preaching the gospel to ourselves without adding anything to it and by proclaiming it to the world without adding anything to it and humbly allowing God to work. So a couple quick lessons here before we get to our last point this morning. And that is, firstly, don't fear weakness. Don't fear weakness. It is interesting in history how many times a person has encountered a major trial and has assumed by that that God has now sidelined them from a great work when it turns out the major trial was the great work, that it was through that weakness that God was pleased to do powerful things. Do not fear weakness if you feel like you're not wise enough, if you're not mighty enough, if you're not noble enough to represent the Lord well in this world, then good news. That's okay. Are you afraid? Are you weak? Are you trembling? Join the club? Even Paul's been there. And it was through those experiences that God did his greatest work through Paul. We do not need to fear weakness. We need to fear faithlessness. That is what will compromise our lives and our ministries, not weakness. Secondly, reject all human manipulation. Reject all human manipulation. In, and this, this comes out in subtle ways. Have you ever noticed that Christians are really good at manipulating people? Because we have all this powerful language of like right and wrong and eternity and hell and when that's been abused, even those in the world have looked at religion and said, that's just a power play. You're just pulling on people's emotions. Whether it's how we're parenting our children, whether it's how we do music on a Sunday morning, we must always be mindful that we are not seeking to add the wisdom of this world, the force of charisma, the presence of personality, the power and strength of anything but Christ and him crucified to the gospel of Jesus Christ to try to give it that little extra oomph. The Christian faith must not be a manipulative one. It must be an open and transparent one. 
in a lot of church movements, I think begin well-intentioned, but are in fact many times boiled down to attempt to add some extra oomph to the power of God. And then thirdly, so let's let God do God things. Let God do God things. And that means there's a lot of rest and peace that can be in our hearts. Because there are times when you're going to go and you're going to speak the truth in love and you're going to lay the gospel out plainly and you're going to apply God's principles clearly and people are going to look at you and go, no, thank you. And the temptation is to go back and say, what did I do wrong? Okay, I need a, I need a better outline. I need more clever illustrations and I need a more, uh, a more gripping uh, conclusion. I'll come back and I'll hit him with a strategy 2.0 and if that doesn't work, back to the drawing board and I'm losing the battle. And what peace there is in saying, that, that's not my job. That's not my job. My job is to proclaim the testimony of God. My job is to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And having done that, let the power of God do what the power of God is going to do. Let the spirit blow where he may and be able to rest in what he is going to do. We must be faithful, but let God do the God things. And if we pour our life into this kind of ministry, what will be the results? Well, in short, we will be the tools by which God can be pouring that solid foundation for the faith of those that we're privileged to serve. And that's where Paul ends. We can't preach the gospel man's way. We must preach the gospel God's way because it's ultimately God's work anyway. And faith in God is the only way. Shocked again, I can tell. Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. Paul knew that if he employed worldly tactics, he would reap worldly results. One of my favorite phrases in ministry is what you win them with, you win them too. Whether that's in youth ministry or in any other area, it is so important that we are not baiting the hook of the gospel with the things of the world because that will not develop a taste for the gospel. It'll develop a taste for worms. Paul intentionally built his ministry in such a way as to prevent any of the sand of human wisdom from compromising the rock foundation of their faith. Their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men because there wasn't any mixed in. There was none for them to latch on to. Instead, it would rest on the power of God. That is the only fitting foundation for our faith the power of God on display in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners. If we trust in the philosophy of Christianity, the cleverness of Christianity, the music and experience of Christianity, the community and morality of Christianity, but do not have confidence in the power of God in Christ Jesus, then we're not building biblical faith. And that compromised faith will eventually fall as we've seen happen over and over again, tragically in the lives of people we know and even in large ministries either under the weight of its own cracks or because at some point God does not tolerate fraudulent faith and he'll implode it. And so a couple closing thoughts for us this morning. One is study God's word. Study God's word. Why? Because it is God's word that helps us push all the wisdom of man out. It's God's word that helps us retrain our fallen instincts because we instinctually want to handle situations ways that we shouldn't. It is God's word that fills us with truth and shows us how the cross of Jesus Christ connects to 
everything else. And if we are not saturated by God's word, then something else is also getting soaked up. So we must be students of the word of God so that our faith is undiluted. And secondly, check foundations regularly. Check foundations regularly. Our own foundations, those of others that we have the privilege of having input into. Talk to your, talk to your children. Find out what are they trusting in. You might be surprised to realize, whoops, they've misunderstood some things that I was trying to communicate. Check your own life. What are you trusting in? Where is your confidence coming from? Is it Christ and Christ crucified alone? Laying a gospel foundation is not the entire structure. Our faith is built on it. And Paul is going to be moving in the next chapter and showing what that is supposed to look like as we then work this truth out into our sanctification and into every other area of life. But the gospel foundation is the most critical component because it bears the weight of our lives. And so this morning I pray that we will walk carefully in the fear of the Lord because that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And that leads us to a, a special time uh, and a unique time this morning. We would normally be closing with a final song um, at this point, but today is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we'll be ending our live stream shortly because we have some church family things to discuss that don't need to be streamed publicly. Uh, I'd also, in just a moment, I will invite us to stand and we will pray. And after I pray, if, if you're visiting with us this morning, if, if Valley Bible Church is not your, your home church where you're plugged in, then you're dismissed. Uh, like you said, this, we just have some family business to take care of and we we'll invite you uh, to head off. Uh, but these are, these are the things that come up in a family. And so if you um, are on the live stream and you have questions, feel free to contact our church this week if uh, Valley Bible Church is your home. Uh, but we'll have Pastor Ben come up in just a moment. But I'd invite you to stand with me. We will close in prayer. And then uh, for those that are to be dismissed, you can be dismissed. And if you're a part of our, our church, we'll have a special announcement from Ben. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful to you that you have given us a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. And if any of us were mixed in it, we know that we would bring this whole thing crashing down. And so we are thankful that our salvation does not depend on any human merit or human effort, but that our salvation has been secured by you and is being, as we began in our time of communion, being protected by your power. And for this, we are very grateful. Help us to proclaim the gospel as we received it, pure and undiluted, unashamed and unafraid, that though we may be weak and afraid and trembling, Lord, let us never shrink back from the joy that we have in knowing Christ and him crucified. And so, Lord, we pray these things because you are still at work through the demonstration of your spirit and power in the world today, in our lives, in the lives of those around us. And so we still live with anticipation of watching you work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.